And welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Scrapbook, an original song by Guy Randall of Green, Ohio. He's our feature Ohio musical artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akrabika Journal. Hi, everybody. Steve, a while back, you'll recall we did a story about how some people believed that an Ohioan, Abraham Lincoln's own war secretary, Edwin Stanton, a native of Steubenville, might have been involved in a plot to overthrow the president. And that the fanatic that Stanton and his group recruited was John Wilkes Booth, the man who ultimately assassinated Lincoln. You remember that one? Yes, I absolutely remember it. It's one of our most popular podcasts, actually. Well, there was no proof that this had actually happened, but some of the circumstances were enough to convince a handful of people who have written books supporting the idea. Did you know that another Ohioan was alleged to have been part of a conspiracy that assassinated John F. Kennedy? No, I didn't. I do know that we had the JFK movie and uh, David Ferry and Shaw, but they were in New Orleans. Well, that's really interesting because they were in New Orleans, but David Ferry was actually from Cleveland. I had no idea that he was from Cleveland, Ohio. I assumed he just was native down there in the South. I swear, if you look deep enough, you'll find a connection to Ohio in every significant piece of American history. Anyway, like the Stanton story, there are enough interesting circumstances to at least raise your eyebrows, including David Ferry's very mysterious and untimely death. So let's get started. David Ferry was born March 28, 1918, in Cleveland, to James and Burdette Ferry. He also had a brother, Parmalee. I found their family tree online, and turns out they have deep, deep roots in this country. He's a descendant of three different branches of English Puritans who came to this country in the 1600s. And he had two great-great-grandfathers who fought in the U.S. Revolution. But this branch of his family tree is going to end with them. Neither David nor his brother Parmalee would go on to have children. By the time David Ferry was born, the family was staunch Catholic. 
and he graduated from St. Ignatius High School. Afterward, he took classes at both John Carroll University and Baldwin-Wallace College, but he ended up studying for the priesthood. He spent three years at St. Charles Seminary in Cartagena, Ohio. That's in Mercer County, along the Indiana border. Ferry had an unusual, lifelong condition. He suffered from alopecia areata, a rare skin condition that results in a complete loss of body hair. Later in life, to compensate for that condition, he started wearing a reddish homemade wig and fake eyebrows, giving him a distinctive look so that if you met him, you would never forget him. There was something else about Ferry that I found it hard to define. He was either gay, bisexual, or he was accused of being a pedophile. Frankly, it's not very clear. In 1944, he left the seminary for what was termed emotional instability. And that was the first of many times that Ferry was going to separate with some organization or employer over language that was deliberately unclear. You'll see what I mean as we go on. After the seminary, Ferry needed a new career. He decided to become a pilot. He got his pilot's license and soon found a job teaching aeronautics at Cleveland's Benedictine High School. This would lead to his second awkward separation. He was fired from the school for several infractions, including taking boys to a house of prostitution. He became an insurance inspector for a time, and then in 1951, he left behind his roots and moved south settling in New Orleans. He became a pilot for Eastern Airlines for several years, but lost that job in August of 1961 after being arrested twice on what were called moral charges. But Ferry continued his love for aviation with the Civil Air Patrol. That's a civilian group of volunteers, federally funded through the Air Force. They have aviation training, and they stand ready to help with domestic air needs in times of emergency. Ferry actually started with the 5th Cleveland Squadron at Hopkins Airport back in 1947, and when he moved to New Orleans, he transferred to a squadron at the Lakefront Airport there. He became an instructor and later served as its commander, But in 1954, a cadet pilot that he had trained perished in a plane crash. That year, the squadron declined to renew his annual contract. So in 1955, he joined a smaller squadron over at Mossant Airport and became an instructor there. He wasn't the only new member of the squadron that year. Signing up that July was a 15-year-old boy named Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, a couple of years later, Ferry was invited back to the New Orleans Civil Air Patrol. He lasted about a year before quitting over some dispute. Apparently, he had enough of the boomeranging around because that's when he decided to start his own unofficial squadron. He called it the Metairie Falcon Cadet Squadron. 
But Ferry apparently continued to develop improper relations with teenage boys. And when he was arrested again for something related to this in 1961, I couldn't find specific details. His unofficial squadron folded. But something lasted from that group. Ferry had also fostered relationships with men who were part of a rabidly anti-communist group that was focused on fighting Fidel Castro. They called themselves the Cuban Democratic Revolutionary Front, and from what I can tell, they had the support of the CIA. This group was increasingly upset with President John F. Kennedy because of his attempts to make peace with Castro. In 1961, Ferry was invited to give a speech to the New Orleans chapter of the Military Order of World Wars. And things he was saying about Kennedy in his speech were so offensive, he was asked to leave the podium. Ferry also became friends with the Revolutionary Front's leader, a Cuban exile named Sergio Arcasha Smith. And Ferry helped collect resources for the group, even helping to raid a munitions depot in Louisiana to steal weapons, grenades, and ammunition. New Orleans, it should be said, was the perfect location for this kind of activity, especially if you were a pilot. The city was known as a place where it was relatively easy to get through customs, and both the CIA and the mafia would approach pilots there to fly special missions for them. It's unclear if Ferry made friends with CIA operatives, but he definitely nurtured relationships with organized crime. In the early 60s, Ferry made friends with Guy Bannister. He was a private investigator who used to be an FBI agent, and he helped Ferry fight some charges that were described as extortion and, quote, crimes against nature. Again, that's language I can only imagine might have been used in the South to refer to homosexual activity. Anyway, Bannister introduced him to the New Orleans godfather, Carlos Marcello, who ruled over an empire of illegal gambling. In 1961, the nation's top lawman, that was U.S. Attorney General Robert Kennedy, brother of John F. Kennedy, he ordered Marcello deported. They waited till he made a routine trip to update his immigration papers, then they arrested him and loaded him on the plane to Guatemala. But two months later, Marcello was back. That's because our own David Ferry went to Guatemala and flew the crime boss back on a private plane. Once back in the United States, Marcello fought a second deportation and won. He was acquitted on November 22, 1963. If that date rings a bell, it should. It was the same day John Kennedy was shot. Here's CBS newsman Walter Cronkite breaking into the soap opera As the World Turns with the news. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. 
And then, one hour later, this now famous announcement. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. In the days to come, a lot of people would come to believe the New Orleans Godfather had something to do with that. Even 15 years later, the House Select Committee on Assassinations would comment that Marcello seemed like a potential suspect, though it could never be proven. And if Marcello might have been involved, the leap to David Ferry wasn't a big one. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio vs. the world makes history fun again. So follow along here. The night after Kennedy's murder, Ferry's investigator buddy, Guy Bannister, was having a drink at a New Orleans hotel with one of his employees, Jack Martin. Remember, this was also the day Marcello was acquitted in his deportation case, so Bannister, at the very least, was celebrating. Bannister and Jack Martin left the bar and went back to their office, where they ended up in a really heated argument, during which, at some point, Jack Martin said to Bannister, What are you going to do? Kill me like you all did Kennedy? At that point, Bannister drew his three fifty seven Magnum revolver and pistol-whipped Martin several times. Martin ended up in the hospital. While he was recovering from that assault, Martin told authorities his suspicions that Ferry taught Oswald how to use the rifle with a telescopic sight and that Ferry was supposed to be his getaway pilot. Martin went on to say he was present when Ferry talked about wanting to kill Kennedy and even outlining a plan to do just that. And this curious fact that Ferry had driven from New Orleans to Texas on the day of the assassination, that it was all part of the preparation to be in place when he was needed. So, the FBI went to Ferry. They asked him if he knew Oswald. Never met the guy, Ferry said. They asked if he ever talked about wanting to kill Kennedy. Ferry acknowledged that he didn't like the guy and might have said something along the lines of wanting him shot, but that it was just a turn of phrase. And then they asked him where he was the day of Kennedy's assassination, and Ferry gave them this story. 
He said he and two buddies drove 350 miles from New Orleans to the Winterland Skating Rink in Houston, Texas, because he was thinking about opening a skating rink, and he wanted to get some operational advice from the manager there. But when the FBI talked to that skating rink manager, Chuck Rowland, Rowland told them Ferry was there all right, but they never discussed business once. Instead, Ferry was pinned to a payphone, making and receiving phone calls the entire time. Now, why would Ferry need to drive from New Orleans to Houston, Texas, to man a payphone? You can see why people were getting very curious about this guy. Now, not everything Jack Martin told the FBI proved to be true. For instance, he told them he'd heard that when Oswald was arrested, Ferry's library card was found in his possession. But when the FBI asked Ferry about that, he produced his library card and proved that he still had it. Martin also told the FBI he thought Ferry had groomed Oswald for the job by hypnotizing him to carry it out. But to many, that sounded rather silly and only made Martin seem less reliable in the eyes of authorities. Not all authorities, however, because one man was going to become very impressed with Jack Martin's story and the idea that Ferry was a key player in the assassination. His name was Jim Garrison, and he was the district attorney for the city of New Orleans. Garrison said no way, no how, could one person plan and carry out the assassination of the president. And he was convinced that what ended on Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, began as a conspiracy in his city. It should be noted, Garrison's interest is coming after the Warren Commission, That was the commission that was established by President Lyndon B. Johnson to investigate Kennedy's murder. And they issued a final report in 1964 concluding that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. It was 1966, so that's two years later, when Garrison found himself interviewing Jack Martin and developing a theory that a local New Orleans businessman named Clay Shaw and Ohio native David Ferry were part of the plan to kill the president. Their motive, again, anger that Kennedy was seeking peace with Cuba. In mid-February of 1967, Garrison's interest was made public in a New Orleans newspaper story. Here's Jim Garrison's own voice describing his theory. He doesn't name Ferry in this clip, but lays out the conspiracy that he believed Ferry to be a part of. And when he's referring to the Minutemen in Louisiana, he's referring to Ferry. Uh, There were uh, uh, Minutemen in in the the Dallas area and and some in 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 Louisiana that that coordinated on this, this operation as individuals. And it was uh, extremely well financed. There were individuals in the Dallas Police Department, uh, like a grapevine coming down the side of the building, which had relationships with each other and also relationships with the individuals who killed the president, who killed uh, Tippett, and who killed Oswald. And this structure is what allowed it to occur so effectively because it was a pre-existing secret structure of individuals who had trained with arms 
who were militantly opposed to what President Kennedy was doing. This was the ambush that the President was in. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. After Garrison went public with his investigation, David Ferry called Garrison's office and spoke with his aide, Lou Ivan. He told Lou Ivan, You know what this new story does to me, don't you? I'm a dead man. From here on, believe me, I'm a dead man. And you know what? He wasn't wrong. A couple of days later, on February 22, 1967, Ferry was found dead in his apartment. There were two typewritten letters in his apartment, unsigned. One was a rant about the justice system, beginning with, To leave this life is, for me, a sweet prospect. The second letter left his possessions to a friend. Garrison said it looked like suicide, though he wouldn't rule out murder. But the coroner, Nicholas Chet, said it wasn't either. After an autopsy, he ruled Ferry had died of a brain aneurysm. After hearing the coroner's ruling, a clearly skeptical Garrison told reporters, I suppose it could just be a weird coincidence that the night Ferry penned two suicide notes, he died of natural causes. Well, Ferry was dead, but Jim Garrison's investigation was not. And he continued and ended up with charges against that surviving businessman, Clay Shaw. And during the trial, Ferry's name came up again. Garrison's key witness against Shaw was Perry Russo, a 25-year-old insurance salesman from Baton Rouge. During Shaw's trial, Russo testified that he had attended an assassination party at David Ferry's apartment, where Shaw, Ferry, and Lee Harvey Oswald had discussed killing the president. But in the end, a jury didn't find enough evidence to convict Shaw, and he was acquitted. In 1979, the House Select Committee on Assassinations would take another look at the evidence and, again, not find enough to name David Ferry as a co-conspirator. But its report did comment that it was satisfied that the two men knew each other and that it believed Ferry had met with Oswald, 
even just two months before Kennedy was shot. But even the House Committee and other federal investigations that happened over the years all agreed with the results of that 1964 Warren Commission report. The Kennedy was killed by two bullets from a gun fired by Lee Harvey Oswald and that he acted alone. Here's future President Gerald Ford, a congressman when he served on the Warren Commission, assuring reporters in 1967 that they had looked at a potential conspiracy connected to New Orleans and found nothing. Congressman, to your knowledge, was the possibility of a conspiracy in New Orleans ever even mentioned during the investigation? Oh, yes. The uh, Warren Commission made a tremendous effort to uh, interrogate every possible uh, individual who allegedly had any connection with the uh, assassination. We uh, thoroughly investigated all aspects of Oswald's uh, uh, period of time in New Orleans. Uh, There was never any... uh, Uh, failure to do anything and everything we could to look into this aspect of Oswald's life. I mentioned that David Ferry never admitted to knowing Lee Harvey Oswald at all. It wasn't until 1993, that was 30 years after Kennedy's death, that physical evidence came forward to weaken that claim. It was in the form of a photograph revealed on the PBS television program Frontline for the very first time. It was a black and white picture taken eight years before the assassination at a Civil Air Patrol picnic. The man who took the picture was in the patrol at the time, and he told Frontline that he let the FBI know Ferry and Oswald knew each other, though he hadn't thought to produce the picture to prove it. There are several men in the photo, so Frontline was careful to note that it didn't prove the two men knew each other. Sometimes people end up in a group shot without knowing everybody else who's in it with them. But it was hard not to be impressed. There he was, David Ferry, and just 10 feet from his left shoulder, Lee Harvey Oswald. I came across another story. This one was published just two years ago, and it was really quite interesting. It was in Fairhope, Alaska, and the local paper had interviewed a man who was talking about his father's days as a commercial pilot for Eastern Airlines. In that story, James Walter Jr. said his dad told him about the first time he saw Oswald's picture plastered on TV screens and front pages after Kennedy had been shot. He told his son he thought, Oh my God, I met that guy at Dave Ferry's. James Walter Sr. had been a co-pilot to Captain Ferry during those years at Eastern Airlines in New Orleans. And he said Ferry had hosted a party less than a year before the assassination. He said Oswald was memorable because he was totally out of place. Everyone else at the party were pilots and their wives and girlfriends. They were a crowd that acted like they were on top of the world. They had money and women and the prestige of flying airplanes when the industry was still young. Oswald was none of those things. He really looked like a lump against the wall. I got no indication Walters ever had the chance to share that recollection with the FBI back when they were investigating, but it was pretty interesting nonetheless. 
By the way, if you watch Oliver Stone's 1991 movie, JFK, which advances the theory that the assassination was a conspiracy and that Oswald didn't act alone, you'll find David Ferry's character in it. He's played by the actor Joe Pesci. So, Steve, what do you think? This story is just fascinating. You have David Ferry in a picture with Oswald way before the assassination, and Ferry said he never even knew him? I I don't know. It seems kind of fishy. Another thing that is kind of weird is you have Ferry and Shaw who are anti-communist, but Oswald is supposed to be a communist? How's he working for them if, you know, he's a communist? And the one thing that I just can't wrap my head around is that trip that Ferry made to Houston. If he's interested in opening an ice skating rink, why do you have to drive to another state? I am sure there are ice skating rinks around New Orleans to question their managers about. And for that manager to say, he didn't question me at all. He sat at the payphone all day. Right. Why? Why do you drive from New Orleans to Houston to sit at a payphone all day? Right. Why aren't you talking to the manager and getting all this information and just sitting on it on the payphone, you know, the whole day during this assassination? It's just it's ridiculous. It's really weird. I I will say for the record, I think Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I think people might have known what he was up to. But I don't think it was a conspiracy. I've, I've read tons of this stuff, and I've actually interviewed a couple of people. I've interviewed a member of the Warren Commission. I interviewed, if you see a picture of Kennedy in his convertible, and there's a car right behind it, and there are four men standing on the boards of the car, on the outside of the car, as they're going through that, you know, down Dealey Plaza I interviewed one of the guys who was standing on that car. And, you know, after talking to them, it's enough for a whole other episode, but I became pretty convinced that they really believed Lee Harvey Oswald. They really believed he acted alone. And, you know, they kind of convinced me too. But there are definitely interesting questions about this uh, David Ferry guy. Yeah, conspiracy theories are fun, as long as you don't take them too serious. In this day and age, you're kind of taking them a little too serious. But I love listening to conspiracy theories. They're, they're great. But like you said, usually the simplest explanation is probably the real thing. They are very entertaining. That's it for tonight, listeners, for photos, news clippings, and more. On this and every episode... Hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. You can also leave us a voicemail. Just call 234-738-0966. We'd love to hear your feedback as well as your suggestions for a future episode. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Guy Randall is an Akron firefighter by day and a singer-songwriter by night, writing and performing in a variety of genres, because he said he loves all kinds of music. He only picked up the guitar a few years ago and at the same time discovered a voice he didn't know he had. And boy, are we glad he did. I love the song we're featuring tonight, Scrapbook. Here's Guy's explanation of Scrapbook. It's about mourning the fact that a precious era of your life has come to an end. You try to piece together and save what you remember of it before it fades with time. And at the same time, finding balance between reminiscing or grieving what you lost 
and moving on with your life to embrace new experiences. Anyway, Guy said he used the opportunity over the past year to write a lot of new songs, and he can't wait till he can get out there and start performing them live again. You can learn more about Guy at his website, GuyRandallArtist.com, and look for his Facebook page. Well, let's have another listen to Scrapbook by Guy Randall, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Time marches on It's how it's always been By the time you take a moment You try to pick it up Oh, it the moment's
Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.